You're listening to Music Tectonics. Hi everyone, welcome to Music Tectonics, the podcast where we get to explore all the shaking, rumbling, and shifts at the intersection of music and technology. I'm your host today, Tristra Neuer Jaeger, strategist at Rock Paper Scissors, the music tech PR firm. This episode dives into one of the buzziest topics in music technology at the moment, the wild, almost uncharted ecosystem of Web3. And that could be anything from blockchain, crypto, NFTs, DAOs, you name it. Our guide today is Jack Spallone, who's been exploring this territory for years. He's currently head of crypto at HiFi Labs, a unique artist-driven agency and collective. But he's dedicated years to bringing the music biz on-chain at Ujo and Consensus. He also has a background as an artist manager. Thanks for joining us today, Jack. Thanks, Trish. I'm really excited to be here. So let's start off with what's going on right now in your world. Tell us a little bit about your role at HiFi. Yeah, so um, I recently joined a company called HiFi Labs. Um, As you mentioned, we're kind of an artist idea incubator. Um, We like to think of what we do as uh, being the technical partner to artists. Um, I joined because it's this vision of artists leveraging technology in a way that they own what they do. Um, Crypto is quite popular for all of its financial utilities, but some of the other more uh, primitive concepts around uh, owning your identity online and managing the data that belongs to you uh, through the decentralized web um, is something that I think is a very, very powerful economic shift for how artists have made a living um, in the digital sphere via the web. Um, but a part of that is that artists will no longer rely on platforms. So who will they rely on for um, shepherding them through the technology that they use? And after working on a product for several years at the intersection of Web3 and music, I have recognized that I could have a better impact working directly hands-on with artists, um, treating them like the platform. Um, So we can get more into, I think, what exactly that means. But um, in a nutshell, um, I I don't know a better group of people than the team that's been assembled at Hi-Fi Labs uh, to tackle representing artists on the technical side um, in a not one-size-fits-all, but a very um, flexible way that can be very different from artist to artist. That's exciting. So let's rewind for a second and talk a little bit about how you got interested in all of this. Um, Clearly, you have a fascination with music. What led you um, down the path of crypto, blockchain, Web3? Yeah, so it it starts um, before crypto, but I've always had this obsession uh, with being an entrepreneur, um, and I've always loved tech, and I always thought that tech and um, something on the internet was going to be a large part of whatever my professional life was. And it was when I was in college that I got really into going out to shows and events. Um, I didn't live in an area where there were very many, uh, concerts or live shows. So as soon as I was living, um, off on my own in college, it was something that I, I was really, really taken advantage of. But at that time, a lot of events were still done or promoted by um, actual paper flyers. And I had a very difficult time finding where events were. So inspired by you know a lot of applications and tools and 
in what was going on on the internet, I was just like, we just need a website for a calendar of events uh, for all the shows in town. So I created something uh, kind of like a blog. It was a WordPress site, but it was just a calendar, like plug-in um, landing page. And I, I populated events as I as I found them. And quickly, promoters reached out to me and they asked me if I could put their events on there. They would pay me to do so. Um, I really didn't understand at that time the relationship of promoters and venues and talent buying. Um, but I quickly got absorbed up into my local uh, live performance scene. And this led me to selling the website. I eventually um, started investing in talent buying myself, booking shows, working with agents. Um, and then I eventually thought, you know, this is not for me. I don't think this is my calling. Um, I kind of quit. Um, but I was still an undergrad and I was studying some music business. Um, I was I was taking some music business courses and I was learning a lot about music licensing and copyright and how royalties were paid. And I streaming had not really matured to the giant that it was at, the t- at now that it is at this time. But um, the money flows were certainly just as they are how they are today. And I was really inspired by what technology could do for music royalties. And around the same time, people were talking about how Bitcoin could be this potential solution for um, basically royalties, but also um, investing in artists. And while it all sort of fell short of what's really possible from a regulatory point of view and from a technical point of view, um, Ethereum eventually came out and was kind of all of those theories very crystallized um, in how and what could be possible. So this was really inspired because I, I, after doing live performances, my my relationships that I'd made running a blog uh, led me to managing artists. Um, <clears throat> this was around 2013, 2014, uh, but a group of my friends and I, uh, we were just representing artists that we found on SoundCloud. We were getting them on different blogs. We were pushing them up to Hype Machine, um, really kind of riding the, the tail end of the blog house era. Um, but some of those artists became really popular. We negotiated like a remix uh, deal with um, a famous Sony artist, and we got nothing for that deal. We we were basically given permission to release it, but we were to see, receive wow. no royalties. Wow, that's rough. So, yeah, so it was this combination of the tech is incredibly far behind, but also we have these administrative processes um, and sort of expectations or norms where remixing is not really something that could be lucrative for artists. Um, so we had this really big mismatch with the culture of music uh, from an actual consumption point of view, but actual uh, production and output point of view, especially what was happening on SoundCloud and the technology that matched it. So I, I, I really thought, you know what, my opportunity is to focus on new technology to migrate the future of music licensing into a much more flexible ecosystem um, that looks much more programmatic and ultimately drives down the costs of the system uh, while simultaneously growing the entire market. Uh, that was kind of always my thesis since very early on. Um, Ethereum eventually came out. Um, I was living in New York City and I was working in my spare time uh, with an engineer basically describing uh, music intellectual property for the purpose of licensing um, in a way that could be compatible with smart contracts on Ethereum. 
This is what led me to Consensus, uh, which is co-founded by a co-founder of Ethereum. And they were very early on kind of the dev shop uh, for all tools and, and access points for what was going on on Ethereum. Uh, namely, MetaMask came out of uh, Consensus. It's still a Consensus product. Um, so it was really the ground floor of what was going on in Ethereum. And in 2016, 2017, there was a ton of interest from the, I'll call the incumbent music industry, um, legacy institutions for major labels, PROs, uh, all copyright societies, publishers um, around the world, as well as DSPs like Spotify, um, Apple Music, even like YouTube, Pandora, uh, all of the, 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 basically the entire supply chain of the publishing and recording industries was looking at blockchain, you know, capital B blockchain, what could it do? Um, it was around that time that I joined the Open Music Initiative, um, which was an effort by Berkeley, and it basically brought all relevant parties into the room. And while that consensus, we had hundreds of hours of conversations with these parties. We were trying to explore how we can modernize their systems um, in a very collaborative partnership. Um, but frankly, that there's this kind of triad of business, uh, copyright law, and the kind of intentions of how this music is used that um, I'll, I'll say created this gridlock, if you will, of innovation. And we are dependent on these certain systems that um, we need at scale to operate in the way that we do. And it's incredibly difficult to innovate on them uh, without disrupting the entire thing. So I say all this because for years, really from like 2016 to 2019, there, there really was like an earnest effort from, I would say, the, the industry at large to explore how blockchain or decentralized technology more broadly could help modernize um, and create more efficiencies in the music supply chain of rights information as well as licensing um, and all the various kind of requisites along that, that, that way. Um, but it really started to change around 2019 and 2020, where it was kind of feeling like it, it was increasingly difficult to make these changes because it, we're talking about an entirely whole new system, not smaller parts that could innovate around the edge that made it incredibly difficult to do, um, that we, we started to see some, I'll call them consumer level use cases emerge, um, namely, you know, what's going on with NFTs right now, but also social tokens, also DAOs, um, you know, token gating experiences and discord. Um, these start, start, these things started to emerge and present a very, very good example of net new ways for artists to make money using web three tools and crypto that for me, someone who's been focused on really liberating music licensing through this technology and making artists more money as a result being the kind of end goal, realized that maybe focusing on the actual music assets was not the most primary way of getting there. I think ultimately this technology still presents um, the best blank canvas for redoing how, how we do music licensing today, yet there are immediate quick wins for artists to make money in a way that is still compatible 
with these legacy systems and just not necessarily cannibalize them in any way. Jack, do you see uh, this being sort of like a completely separate ecosystem that's going to evolve somewhat independently from the traditional legacy systems, and that includes music streaming and DSPs, et cetera. I mean, is it, are there going to be sort of two parallel tracks that then eventually can merge? Or how do you imagine, um, and it's amazing to hear about the, uh, Im, you know, the embrace of some of these technologies by consumers, music, uh, music makers, music fans. Um, but I, I'm really fascinated by, uh, by your sort of oral history of, of the industry trying to come to terms with this tech. How do you imagine things are going to work moving forward in the in the near term? Yeah, so so I'll say, you know, back in 2017, we were developing a project at Consensus, the Ujo Music Portal. And really it was this vision for putting your music assets in into decentralized storage networks, having smart contracts on Ethereum that necessitated the licensing policies around them. And then you have the identities of people via their wallets interacting with them and paying for them all without any administrative intervention. But we needed a way to show that, so we built this product that was just a very lightweight application on top called the Ujo Music Portal, where you could upload music, describe the rights information, set a price, and then offer it for a digital download. The issue was that we can pay the rights holders directly if they come and register with us via their wallet address. But there are still necessary payment channels that you need to go through for licensing due to copyright protections doing so that forced us to say, we're drawing a line in the sand. If we're going to sell music in this way, yet it meets the criteria of an interactive stream or you know a, a purchase via download, and we are not necessarily in the business of taking money from people as a you know, platform fee or, or whatever, um, where do we pay our blanket licenses if we're offering people to play these songs on our site? So we had to say, come to our come to our site, use it, but only if you're not represented by a publishing deal um, on the songwriting side, or if you, you know, you fully own your masters. Um, because if they're not using this platform, uh, we cannot pay them through those traditional ways. So it really was like a let's do this line in the sand, we're going to exist over here, we're going to show this model, and we're going to hope that over time it becomes adopted and used more widely. And many, many people, um, companies can build their own applications on top of these smart contracts and catalogs stored in decentralized storage networks. But then with this kind of shift that I'm mentioning that happened around 2019-2020, we're now looking at a way that this is not necessarily something that should be considered an alternative approach. If we can make a legal argument that by selling an NFT, you're not offering an interactive stream or a download, and you're not actually selling the work, then you're buying just like a collector's item akin to maybe like a signed autograph or something of that nature. Then you're talking about a net new product offering for that artist. And I'll I'll tell artists today that like, you know there 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 are ways to make money using crypto and you can mint a one of one say nft of your music and then you can put it out on spotify you can put it out through distribution to all the dsps for for streaming but let's think more about contextualizing the release schedule 
Let's think streaming is the end all be all. Napster invented the search bar for music catalog. And we've, you know, we took 10 years, 10, 15 years to really perfect that and get it right so that that could be remunerated. But now, what are the other innovative things that the internet allows us? Well, we need to contextualize a music release because we have this infinite copy streaming that's great. You know, I, frankly, I, I love the convenience of being able to go search any song that I want via Spotify. And I, th- I think that there should be a place for that in perpetuity. But if you're releasing music today, should that be the first place your music goes? Should you consider maybe carving out pre-markets where maybe first you release of one of one and anyone can listen to it, or maybe just the person that buys it can listen to it. And then maybe two weeks later you release a thousand editions and, you know, maybe you make it so that anyone can listen to it, or maybe you make it so that just a thousand people. And then maybe, you know, a month after that first one of one release, you finally put it out to all DSPs where, um, you know, people can pay $10 a month and, and they can listen to it all they want. Um, I like to compare this to how movies are released. Why, why don't, um, songs or music releases have some sort of theater release that is really the box office sale of the song. And we're seeing this emerge, but NFTs now present this, this net new way of contextualizing the release and distribution of a music asset. And that that's very interesting economically because you're basically just asking the market is there value in accessing this now or is there value in having some sort of permanent record of ownership? Um, there's a lot of interesting ways that you can interpret this, but really these tools are just a fabric of applying economies around these assets. And no one I know today really disagrees with the value in being a well-listened to artist on Spotify. Um, it continues to be a metric of how many monthly listeners you have on Spotify. And I think that should, that will continue to be the case. But financially speaking, creator economy tools and services for musicians are growing faster from market share and economic point of view than streaming is. And streaming has been this you know elephant in the room for close to a decade now. And so we're now starting to see these other ways take off where these things that I'm putting under the bucket of creator economy are actually growing much faster as a means of revenue for artists than streaming. And that's really interesting because it doesn't necessarily cannibalize streaming. It's net new. I think this is such an interesting point in that, I mean, if we look back at the history of uh, reproduced uh, media, right? There was concern that, we, you know, with the advent of the phonograph, that this would kill live performances. There'll be no more orchestras. Um, you know, John, John Philip Sousa got all in, in a huff about like how no one's going to listen to live music anymore. And yet that's not what happened. Um, habits shifted and people developed new uh, new habits around this new object, right? The the phonograph, and in some ways, I think we're seeing something very similar. Where we had, you know, we had this digital revolution where the value of music really changed, um, and now we're seeing it change once again with the introduction of this new format. Um, so I was curious what how you see this and where. I, I, how exactly do you see sort of habits of value forming around, um, you know, things like NFTs? Well, I think the big thing there is is community 
Um, you know, we hear this this a lot, and it's quite come. It's 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 quickly become this buzz term um, that has many meanings. But community, in essence, is really just a fan base. Um, but it's one that is markedly different from the traditional kind of one to many, uh, one directional kind of relationship that artists have had with their fans. Um, in communities, it's a two-way street relationship. And this is incredibly dependent on the artist that we're speaking to. But artists today that are looking at how they can invite their community into whatever process it is that they feel appropriate, um, stand to carve out new revenue models that otherwise have not existed prior. So with the NFTs, namely, um, some things that I'm very fascinated at and, and watching closely are this shift from thinking about NFTs as just like a transactional sale of a piece of work, but rather using that using that as a catalyst to invite someone as a supporter of you. And another way of like, you know, analog for this is artists traditionally have, have, have worked for um, the advances that they get. If they get an advance, effectively it's a loan and their expectation is to release music. And in some cases it's more than that, but um, just to oversimplify, effectively the artist is working for that advance. It's working in exchange for that advance. Yet when we talk about like a startup, we don't necessarily call our seed investors someone that's giving us a loan or someone that we're working for. Um, instead, they're strategic partners or angel investors. And I don't think investor is like the perfect kind of language here, but that that dichotomy of your early investors being your biggest supporters and people that are going to make you successful is really the shift I see from, say, a label deal where you're working for the label, they provide services, yes, but really you're working for them, you're providing, um, it's a work for hire type of relationship with a loan. Uh, NFT sales seem to look more like early supporters um, or like strategic partners. Um, this is not the case for everyone. There are, there are probably more examples of NFTs as sales um, today, but if like specifically looking at the artists that are using Mir, um, a, a popular Ethereum crowdfund and blogging platform, um, they're selling these NFTs on Mir. They're then going and subsequently selling NFTs on Catalog. These these are going for thousands of dollars typically, and the artists then take that money and reinvest it in themselves with very little strings attached. But oftentimes, I'm seeing the people that buy them become some of their biggest promoters. And on Twitter, um, at parties in real life, they'll actually book shows with these artists. And it goes to show that some of these people that are buying these NFTs are buying them in a way that they feel that in order to maintain the value and potentially increase the value of these NFTs, um, they have a role in promoting these artists. So there's this new kind of relationship where 
an artist can go and sell NFTs, they can do a crowdfund. And what they're really doing is bringing in partners that are then incentivized to really make this artist become someone. So it's, it's, it's like a crowdfund Kickstarter, but it's, it's culturally very, very different. You're not asking for something. Um, yet that seems to be the kind of intrinsic motivation of the people that end up participating. And, um, and you don't have that annoying post, uh, post Kickstarter. All right. Who do I mail this poster to problem? So in some ways it's a lot easier on artists. It's a slightly lower lift in certain ways. Absolutely. I mean, there, there are artists that are overwhelmed with the amount of attention they get just in entering this kind of web three space and, the amount of people that get excited to see new musicians coming in. Um, so I will caveat that it's not without, um, you know, so much to do, but it's a new kind of way that artists are making money that sits outside of copyright. Um, they have no strings attached. There's no expectation of developing IP um, or really any return to the investors. Um, if, you know, we're going to use that analogy for the people that buy these NFTs. Instead, the kind of phenomenon is the people that buy them end up becoming these massive supporters and help catalyze their kind of inertia in growing. And I'm talking maybe about a very specific cohort of artists that I'm looking at using pure Web3 plays, and they're namely emerging artists. Um, But another example is RAC who's a very established artist. He's been around for over a decade. Um, He existed long before uh, crypto and Bitcoin as RAC. And yet, you know, he pioneered this idea of releasing products that are completely net new offerings for him as an artist via Ethereum, doing um, a social token, and then taking some, you know, capital equivalents in exchange for continuing to build out experiences um, purely based on Web3 tools and, and opportunities. So there are examples of different calibers of artists, and there's different kind of templates, I would say, for, for what they're doing. Um, but I will say that the, what I'm speaking about probably represents maybe 5% of the artists that are actually doing things with NFTs. Well, uh, let's take a quick break, Jack, and we'll be right back. And we're going to talk more about what the future might hold. What's up, beautiful listeners? I've got a question for you. What do you want to hear next? Let me know at pages.musictectonics.com slash feedback. Suggest future guests and music tech topics you want to hear us cover and tell us how we're doing. Again, that's pages.musictectonics.com slash feedback. Look forward to hearing from you. Okay, we're back talking to Jack Spallone about all things Web3. And now um, this is the part that gets really fun, at least for me. We get to get a little bit sci-fi and talk about what the future might hold. So first, let's talk about the near term. Where are we going in the next, say, three to four years when the novelty effect of this new technology wears off and people are really just starting to appreciate it for its creative potential or its economic potential? Where do you see things, say, in... 2025. Yeah, so this is when it gets fun. I agree. Um, in 2025, that it's that's still not very far away. Um, 
so I, I think when we look out and we extend the time horizon to 10 years, it gets even more exciting. But in, in as little as four to five years, I think we'll really break through this idea of Web3 and crypto and NFTs as this like one-dimensional economic thing. Like right now, people think NFTs, you know, there's these, there's largely this environmental narrative, this environmental concern narrative around blockchains. And while it it's certainly fair and applies to some things, um, I think we will depart from that. One, I mean, Ethereum, where the majority of um, programmatic activity happens with blockchains, we will be moving off of proof of work and onto proof of stake. So the the environmental narrative will completely go away with really Web3 pure as, as we're talking about it. Um, but People will understand this as the decentralized web. They will understand that the identity that you bring to an application and the assets you create there, whether it be just behaviors like follows or likes or actually minting of NFTs, whether they're images or audio files or whatever, that you own them. They don't belong to that application. The application is merely just a um, user interface layer, application layer that facilitates the interactions that you have on that specific site. Um, you bring your identity, you bring your assets, you bring the data points that represent behaviors or actions with you across the web. And that will be a very deliberate design choice from any application or company building on top of Web3. And the majority of people in 2025 will understand that. So right now you see a very saturated market of NFT marketplaces saying we're going to do NFTs, but we're going to curate better. We're going to do NFTs, but we're going to make them more price uh, approachable. We're going to do NFTs, but we're going to sell more of them. It's very competitive. It's very competitive speak. It's a bunch of um, Web 2-like thinking coming into Web 3 and thinking about it in a very one-dimensional way. We will depart from that. People will understand that without the permission of an application, you can go build on their user base, you can go build on the assets that they've helped facilitate the creation of, and you could provide potentially some other experience around them using conventional Web2 tech within your application, web app, on your browser or phone, whatever, um, that shows people this connectivity and interoperability that we now have afforded to us with decentralized tech. I think once we reach that, we will absolutely see this Cambrian explosion of new experiences that were just never before imagined or possible without that kind of interoperability. And that is incredibly exciting because you've combined interoperability in an open web with this financial backbone that a blockchain allows us where we can transfer value and everything can be exchanged. So all of a sudden, your data will be valuable, but also the assets you create are valuable. And they that value will be convertible across many different experiences. And I say that very broadly because really I, I'm not to say what what will emerge from it. It's it's but I, I can expect that it will be quite amazing how, how many new experiences are are unveiled through that and I process. I think it'll be really exciting to see what uh, aesthetic implications it has for audio, uh, visual, other aspects. Um, I, th- I feel like we, have, we haven't we have even seen the, the, the barest line of dawn on the horizon when it comes to what, pe- what crazy stuff people are going to do with this, right? So that to me is super exciting. Um, what 
pitfalls do you see we need to be vigilant about? Are there things, are there mistakes that we can learn from Web 2 that uh, we can avoid in Web 3 uh, beyond just the whole issue of centralization? Uh, you know, what do we need to be thinking about to make Web 3 a much better uh, experience for humanity? <laughs> I know, big question, sorry. <laughs> well, yeah, so, so I, I want, like, short answer, redundancy. Let's let's reduce redundancy wherever possible. And now, because of interoperability and a shared data state, we can really prioritize that. With reduced redundancy, we have increased efficiency. With increased efficiency, you have higher higher margins of value. With higher margins of value, you can ultimately return them back to the creators of that value, ultimately the artists that we're talking about in question. So that that's it in a nutshell. But I'll I'll step back and say that the centralized web was necessary. We, you know, like cloud platforms are prolific today, but when streaming emerged, cloud platforms were not like a primary way of, of the semantic web structure. Um, servers were very distributed across, you know, many, many different service providers that offered server space. It was expensive. It wasn't really done well at scale. So to start something like a Spotify, you needed to also be your own cloud platform. But now we have ways of leveraging decentralized cloud platforms in this future. And we still kind of have this very centralized cloud platform that largely is responsible for hosting a lot of uh, blockchain-related tech. So we'll need to move away from that. We'll need to not repeat the centralization of compute and architecture um, that really even this decentralized tech um, is still largely hosted on. But we do that through um, learning. And then if you want to, in, in short, like learning from this past, and um, there, this is not an exclusive music problem, but exclusive to music, the problems that you know, we'll move away from are, again, shifting, shifting how we help artists to this combination of incentivizing people to support them in a way that right now, I mean, you could have major labels compete over an up and coming artist with amazing deals. And it's still very, very awesome to get a deal from a major label yet kind of ubiquitously, they have a, you know, potentially negative stigma about them for being uh, exploitative at times when it comes to copyright and that will change we'll see much more mutual, mutually beneficial relationships. And, and I very much expect major labels to be a part of this uh, for better or for worse, where they will find ways to provide value without having to extract value in perpetuity like they uh, historically may have done when it comes to certain copyright deals. Um, I still see a lot of different structured deals come into NFT marketplaces for artists where artists do not get their commensurate share for what they are. Um, and I think that we'll move towards a culture that um, socially disavows those kinds of activities. Uh, so I, I really think the culture is going to continue to shift just because we're now um, entitled by the technology that we have. That's 
That's really great. Thank you so much for those insights. And before we wrap up, I want to ask you really quick, outside of Web3, what are you most excited about in music tech right now? What what fills you with wonder or hope about music and its future outside of your area of expertise? Is that like whether it's we're talking hardware, instruments, creative movements, um, cool new sounds you can make? <laughs> what what's what what makes you wake up in the morning and go, wow? Well, <laughs> that's tough. Um, my whole life has been devoted to now what is considered Web3. And <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't spend much time not thinking about how um, you know, we can make it happen. Um, but I think really it's this, this I, how do I extrapolate out from Web3? I don't know. This is tough and it's not a question uh, I'm used sorry. to. Um, <laughs> But, I thought it was. Um, I always love to ask the softball question at the end, but I think it, I went a little hardball on you. <laughs> this, this is totally hardball, but um, I, I will say it goes back to community, and, and it may be enabled by Web three yeah. or not. But um, you know, if we were to extract that out of it, it's a result maybe. But um, the communities that I'm a part of that interact with musicians and even industry folk via like discord and just the very real feeling of it. Um, the internet really feeling like it turned a page and it's alive. Like it is, it's, it's real life. Um, despite not being IRL, um, is really, really a thing for me. And I'll have to plug, um, the publication water and music because, um, his publication has very recently kind of turned a page where it invites his community members to contribute to the journalism around um, its music reports and research. And I've, I've kind of loosely participated in that, but through the process have, have made some great relationships with people that uh, think very similar, similarly to me. Um, and it's not necessarily enabled through crypto, but rather just the impetus, impetus of creating community and using something like Discord to facilitate that. Um, and that you're talking to someone that, despite maybe how technical my background might be, Discord was incredibly intimidating when I first really got into it. Um, and it still is incredibly yeah. overwhelming yeah. at times from a UX point of view. Um, but I love it. And I, and I love the result of um, really feeling like the people I interact with online mm -hmm. all day um, are really some of like the closest closest people I have, um, you know, with this. In some ways, mission. Discord is taking over, you know, the blogosphere kind of petered out. And if anyone who's listening was involved in a blog community back in like the late 90s, early 2000s, there was a lot of stuff going on, whether your interest was in a certain type of music or in a particular like sport or uh, whatever macrame um there were like blog communities that you could belong to where people would comment on your posts all the time and people put a lot of effort into you know articulating their ideas i think discord's kind of picking that up and and yet making it a little bit more convenient and um in, in terms of user experience like it's more of a snack rather than having to prepare like a three-course meal but it's it has some of that vibe for me um as an older internet user exactly <laughs> I mean, it, it facilitates the same thing. It's just a tool for effectively the same thing. But combine that with the other tools, not to bring this back to Web3 and what it does. Okay. But um, all of a sudden, you, you, you know, why is this community not something that we treat more like a cooperative and we all have ownership in? And then what if that ownership actually had real US dollar value? 
And then what if that sense of one, we're intrinsically motivated to participate in this community and contribute to it, but we're now also being extrinsically rewarded. It's the combination of those two things that is really this new paradigm of the web. And there's a lot of noise out there. Uh, Probably about 95% of it is not pure web three plays, but we've got some kernels now that didn't exist even a year or two ago that really kind of provide a glimpse into this future of what Web3 will be. Thanks. That's so exciting, Jack. And we'll have to check back in in a year or so and see how things are developing and what your thoughts are. But thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks, Trisha. I would love that. And thank you so much for having me. Awesome. Whoa, the ideas are flying fast on this episode. If you want to follow up on anything we're talking about today, we've made it easy. Head over to musictectonics.com and find this episode on the podcast page. You'll see show notes full of links and a timestamp roadmap of the conversation. We're not responsible for internet rabbit holes you tumble down in the process. Now, let's get back to the conversation. Thanks for listening to Music Tectonics. If you like what you hear, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. We have new episodes for you every week. Did you know you can dig deeper into all our episodes with the show notes at musictectonics.com. While you're there, look for the latest about our annual conference, sign up for our newsletter to get updates, or get the Music Tectonics app for music tech news. Everything we do explores seismic shifts that shake up music and technology the way the Earth's tectonic plates cause quakes and make mountains. Connect with Music Tectonics on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and find me, Dimitri Vitsa, if you can spell it, on LinkedIn. Bye-bye! You're listening to Music Tectonics.